As we journey through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Revelation chapter 2. If you did not get a handout of the seven letters to the seven churches, raise your hand. We'll get you one of those. Where's mine so I can show? There it is. That's it. If you didn't get one of those, please raise your hand. If you lost them, that'll be $5. (laughs) Revelation chapter 2, picking it up in verse 12 through 17 today, the church of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. For I know your works, and where you dwell, and where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. And because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that which I hate. Repent or else. And by the way, you don't ever hear want to hear Jesus say, or else. That's free. Repent or else I will come quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give to the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. On the stone is a new name written, which no one knows except he who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our day, for our time to worship you, to fellowship, Lord, to be a part of the body of Christ once again. And Lord, to hear from you, to hear from the Spirit, Lord, let us have ears to hear. Open our ears. Open up our hearts and our minds that we might hear from you, Lord. As we look at the compromised church today, Lord, that we would reflect. And Father, that we would be honest with you. And so, Lord, thank you for spending time with us today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, So as we journey through uh, the book of Revelation, you know that the key to the book of Revelation is this, is it not? Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which you have seen. We already went through that in chapter 1, the things which are. That's taking us through chapters 2 and 3. By the way, I realize you're sick of this slide, but there are people who come every week who don't have not seen this wonderful slide that I've created in multiple colors and the things which will take place after this. Once we get to chapter 4, we won't use this slide anymore. But this helps us get the foundation and the key to that. But as we started to look inside of these seven letters to the seven churches, which they are in modern-day Turkey, we have started off with Ephesus and last week Smyrna, and today is Pergamos, and then we go through Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But as we look at these, there are the four ways that we are applying these to our life. And number one, they are, again, are real churches in 95 AD that uh, John, uh, as he is on Patmos by the Spirit, is writing. Again, these are red letters, Jesus speaking to the churches, to these real uh, churches, seven churches in modern-day Turkey. But it also, as we will start to see and unpack a little bit more today, a lot more next week and the weeks following, how this applies to church history. And we're going to see and unpack. And listen, don't, (laughs) uh, there's a lot of bad in church history. Have you seen that yet? You will. You'll start to see that today. There's a lot in church history that we cannot stand up for. There's a lot to be excited about. And a lot of faithful people, and there's faithful people in every single one of these churches, even today. And that's number three, that these letters apply to churches today. We're going to see today is the compromising church or the indulged church. We're going to see that there are a lot of churches today, woke churches. I can't believe I'm even saying the word woke. Don't even woke me on the woke today, because I'm going to woke 
at the end. Wait, no. You're going to see what we talk about at the end. We're going to see a lot of compromise that's inside of the church that has no business being there. And it's interesting, not to go off for a minute, but the first line is that the sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, and that is the word of God. And compromised churches always have a problem with God's word. That's why they compromise. That's why Jesus specifically told this church that he has the sharp two-edged sword. But lastly, again, the most important way to apply these letters is individual Christians today. Now, inside of all the letters, we have our four C's, right? We have our four C's. <laughs> Commendation, again, this was a something that the church is doing well, and God recognizes what they were doing. But there's also a disapproval, a condemnation inside of the letters. Last week in Smyrna, we did not see a condemnation. Today, we will... We're going to see a condemnation. And then there's that counsel in every letter. If you do this, then there will be a promise. Again, the last one, challenge to the overcomers. You're going to receive this or that from the Lord. And so, again, that sets our foundation for every letter. Encourage you, if you haven't listened to the last two letters of Smyrna, and of Ephesus, encourage you to listen to that. They are on our podcast. And I just want to make a mention of a couple of things again to you. The podcasts are the only way that you can get our audio from now on. They are no longer on our website. They are just simply on your mobile device. So if you have an Apple device uh, or if you have a Google device or an Android device, you can listen to our podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcast, and they they will be there the next day. So that's how we encourage you to do that. The other thing is uh, get signed up again for Parlor because uh, Parlor is the way that we communicate uh, as well. We we're still on Facebook, but eventually uh, that will end. All right, verse twelve. Ready? <laughs> Third of the churches here, and to the church of Pergamos, write. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Pergamos was a prominent city located, again, as we saw on the map. They weren't on the coast. They were on uh, a little inland, but they were known as the jewel of the Roman Empire. And we're going to see why they were literally one of the most important cities in the ancient world. It was a wealthy city. There were a lot of temples devoted to idol worship. There were statues high. There was an acropolis a thousand feet from the the floor to which uh, there was a temple to Zeus. In fact, that temple to Zeus was uncovered, and eventually the temple was taken piece by piece, and it was shipped off to Berlin. (laughs) Are you ready? You want to know some fun stuff? This is... This is Jeopardy stuff. And eventually, Adolf Hitler had that temple uh, remade into, uh, later on, a a little town called Nuremberg. So when he talks about the throne of Satan, well, apparently it moved a couple of times. But this city was amazing of the day. It literally had temples everywhere, 10 amazing temples not only to the the worship of Caesar, as we will see, but it also had one of the largest libraries of the day, over 200,000 volumes. And at one point, the Egyptians stopped sending papyrus up to Pergamos, and so they had to invent their own writing or a way to write. And so they came up with parchment. So... They are the uh, originators of parchment. Pergamos became the, uh, the, not only the inventor of that, but they had an entire industry to make that and to ship it all over the place. One of the most prominent buildings, obviously Zeus would be one of them, but there was another temple to um, Ascapolis, a uh, pagan god whose idol was of the form of a serpent. Now, In the medical community, you know there's a pole with a serpent around that? That came from Pergamos. 
That's the origins of it. It was a place of healing, and because of that, a lot of people uh, would come to this city for healing, and we'll get to that in a minute. But even more important than that temple (laughs) uh, to healing and to Zeus was that in 29 B.C., the honor fell to Pergamos to build the very first temple to Caesar, and that Caesar was Augustus. And from that point on, they continued to build these temples to Caesar to where Caesar worship got its foundation here in Pergamos. And we've talked about this from Ephesus to Smyrna and how it was by the time that Domitian came into office, that was 95 AD, around the time that John is writing this, that in order to be a good little citizen, you needed to go to the temple, remember that, a little pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, that originated in Pergamos. So in Ephesus and in Smyrna, they would have one temple to a Caesar. But in Pergamos, there were temples to Caesar all over the place. And so think about that. Compared to the surrounding cities, Caesar worship was the most intense in Pergamos. In other cities, Christians might be in danger of only once a year saying Caesar is Lord. But in Pergamos, they were in danger every day of having this because the city was so wrapped up in Caesar worship. It literally was a city of pagan idols. Now, do you kind of understand where Jesus says, hey, you're kind of hanging out where the devil lives. Apparently, the devil's got an address in Pergamos. And we're going to see what happens when you live where the devil lives. Now, he doesn't live here in Myrtle Beach. We know that the devil went down to Georgia. And he was looking for a soul to steal because he was in a bind. Sorry, I just threw everybody off. We still kind of mostly love Georgia. So I have good pastor friends of mine down there. So because Pergamos was known, again, let's get back to the healing, get away from the Caesar worship. We'll come back to that in a minute. But because of this city was so dominated by healing and this temple to their snake god. I want you to hear this. This is from Barclay's commentary uh, about this temple. He said, Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Oh, hold on. In the temple were tame snakes. Now, anybody of you uh, are a snake people? Because if you are, you're a weirdo like my best friend in California. He had all of these snakes, and uh, the first time when I went over to his, to his house, his spare bedroom had stacks of them. I said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and then he would say, oh, no, they're, have you heard this? Oh, no, they're, they're, they're tame. They're gentle. Oh, the reason why God invented the shotgun was because of the snake. <laughs> now, listen. In the temple, there were tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame snakes and apparently harmless snakes. If it glided over you and touched you, apparently you were going to be healed. Boy, I love our medical uh, system right now. Anybody else as bad as it is? How would you like that? You want to get healed? Go to the temple and stay the night. And if a snake crawls on you, I think... Every time a snake has got close to me, I just scream like a little girl. I was doing some gardening years ago and had my hand out, and a black racer went across it. And boy, that'll just get you inside and never want to come out and garden again. Can we sell the house? So that's this city. This city is filled with everything pagan. Got that? Kind of seems like a fun place to live. New York, L.A., San Francisco, Paris. I mean, you just named some of the big cities. What do they have in those cities, and what do they promote? Well, for us, we need to learn from this church because this church, as we will see, is, is one of the most important for far as church history. 
So we talked about the real church in 95 AD. So let's talk about this church when it comes to church history. So it's known as the compromising church or the indulged church. And it is from AD 312, if you're taking note, to roughly 606 AD. So about a 300-year span of time, this church represents the history of the church. So uh, we talked about this last week, but in AD 312, something really important happened on the world stage. And let me read it to you from history. The last of the 10 emperors which had persecuted the church were dead, and it ushered in a power play at that time. One young hopeful coming to the stage, his name was Constantine. And according to legend, this is according to legend, he saw a cross in the heavens and heard a voice saying, in this sign conquer, he saw a cross. And so as a result, young Constantine fell to his knees and became a born-again believer. That's what tradition says. Everybody got that? (laughs) Now, according to other history, it was a little bit different. Constantine noticed that Christians were not enlisting in anyone's army. Realizing that if he could convert to Christianity, he would have a new fighting army. And so he became a Christian, and funny enough, the Christians did respond by siding with him at the time. But it turned out to be a disaster. And as a result of Constantine's edict and toleration now of Christianity, which forbade persecution of the Christians, Christianity became the official religion of Rome and hence the Roman Empire, which was huge at this time. The greatest at its time here, it's the the zenith, the, the biggest it was, was in the time of Constantine. Yes, the Christians were in power, but understanding the political expediency of concession, Constantine compromised, again, with the pagan priest and traditions that permitted, or that permeated all through Rome. Now, I know I lost to some of you when I said history, just hold on a minute. Remember I just said that Pergamos is like the most pagan city of all time, even greater than Rome. Now, if you've got pagan temples, you're going to have pagan priests. Everybody got that? Now, a guy in Rome tells the entire empire, we're now Christians. Now, if you're a pagan priest who gets paid to work at the pagan temple, which is about to be converted into a Christian church, what are you going to do? Well, like most people in the secular world, they see the winds of change going, and like any good politician who knows how to flip-flop very well, they go in that direction. Now, I want to make this statement because, yes, there are people that were saved in this group of time, but I would, I would gather that the majority of them were not. They were just, they just didn't want to die. That's a pretty good motivation. But Jesus said that Christianity doesn't come by the sword. And so as we see, we're going to see this new marriage that takes place between Christianity and the state. When we get to uh, the dead church, which will be a representative of the Reformation, we're going to see the church state continue and grow in strength to eventually the German church, the Anglican church, right, the Church of England, and on and on it goes. We're going to see that it is never a good idea to mix the two together. Oh, there should be Christians in the state, but the state should never be in the church. Can I get an amen? That's why the church, and this is just my opinion, and this is just free, that the church has no business taking funds from the government because now then they can dictate what you can do and what you can't do. Where God guides, he provides. I don't need the man's money. I need the Lord to provide. And as we will see later on, the problem in Nazi Germany was that Hitler put all the pastors on the payroll. And so he dictated to them what they could say and what they couldn't say. All right, I digest, digress. Come on. 
So a marriage took place that perhaps mostly clearly illustrated by a coin that was minted in the day. And the coin had Christian symbols stamped on one side and pagan symbols on the other. So that showed what the compromise, the marriage looked like. It was Christianity. Well, not really. On the other side, it was pagan. And so from 313 A.D. to 606 uh, uh, A.D., the church and the state worked together as a political power, and as a result, the church began a downward spiral from which she has not recovered because that entrenched state church is still around. And we're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church in a minute. So, as the government provided money for the operations of the church, many of the pagan temples, again, were taken over by Christians, and they, those priests wanted to keep their jobs. And so they became Christians, in air quotes. To please the emperor, these leaders adopted customs that were parallel to pagan practices. One compromise leads to another, and what seems to start out as a good idea ends in a great curse upon the church. And over the next three centuries, many anti-Christian practices of the pagan origins were adopted by the church and brought in. Therefore, the church's fire and evangelical fervor were quenched. Because, listen... If you have no persecution and everything's hunky-dory, well, then why go the extra mile? It, it, it was so bad that Constantine forced every newborn baby to be baptized. And so all basically creating a state religion. Now listen, this word compromise. <laughs> so what does it really mean to compromise? And this is the topic today, because I could go into, and I'm going to list a few things uh, about what came inside of the, the church, but the real message of Pergamos is compromise and how dangerous it is for us, especially in the world in which we live in. We will talk about that, about wokeness and racial stuff and this and that and transgender and uh, abortion. We're going to get into all of that today that the church has compromised over. It is no different than in the days of Constantine where there were pagan temples set up and now because of expediency, we want to we be light. But we can't be light, guys, because we serve a holy God that calls us to be separated from the world. Oh, we live here, but we are not allowed to have the world dictate what we should think or do. Well, that's a couple of verses from now. Let's talk about compromise. So what does it really mean? Well, it means to agree or to appease, to cooperate or concede, to find common ground or to give up ground, to barter or to bury the axe. We, we know what compromise means. Christians believe in absolute truth, or let me just say that, should believe in absolute truth. When I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from an a perspective of what we should be doing because it's easy to find what we're not doing. But Christians should believe in absolute truth. So they sometimes feel that any form of compromise can betray their beliefs. And there are times where we can compromise, not over doctrine. There are things that we can uh, be mutually agreeing upon, but it won't hurt doctrine or it won't cause us to do something. Listen, we know if you've been married for five minutes, I was going to say five months, but it takes about five minutes, you know what compromise means, right? You know how important it is, men, to say that it was your fault. I'm sorry. These are the little words you should learn day one. Again, compromise is important. Wise compromise gives up personal preferences and selfish desires for the sake of unity and peace. That's good, isn't it? To give up my personal preferences. Guys, I, I tell you, uh, the longer I'm, uh, I'm a pastor, the more I realize people's problems inside the church are just preferences. 
It's not really doctrine. It's just preferences. They like this or that, or they have to have a steeple or a pew or an organ. or These are preferences. It has nothing to do with heaven later. It just is a preference here. And good compromise say, you know what, I like that, but I'm not going to allow that to push me out of a Bible teaching church and go somewhere and flounder for the next few years. Amen? So compromise can be good, and again, The kind of compromise that we need to back away from are moral principles that easily help, well, that steer us in a place of surrender to the world. So we don't want to go down a place where we are surrendering. That worldly compromise is taking our witness and our faith. Because at the end of the day, what kind of witness is it if the church looks like everything else in the world? Just because you put church on, the, on a pagan temple, but you don't change the hearts inside of the pagan temple, there's no witness. That, and as we'll see, it just becomes a giant machine called religion. And as we talk about all the time, religion's got no place in your life. A relationship is. Listen, like erosion, worldly compromise can slowly, silently and subtly eat away at the truth. It begins as we turn a deaf ear to the corruption or the falsehood all around us. And eventually, we are not only put up with the sins, but we also become seeing them and allowing them more and more in our life. Because we have seen that in the last hundred years of the church. Churches no longer seen sins as sin. That they're going to pick and choose. It's a buffet Christianity. Well, I like that one, but really that one's kind of outdated. So we're not going to go with that. We're going to say, well, you can just do that, I guess. And biblical truth and morality, guys, they, well, they can't exist in a culture of worldly compromise. This is the heart of Christ's message to the Christians of Pergamos. The church in that worldly and wicked city, found itself caught up in the swelling tide of false doctrine and questionable morality. I cannot imagine what it was like to live in Pergamos as a believer, to be surrounded by that every single day, to beat you down every day that you went to the market, you were beat down by the world and just by the sin. (laughs) Jack is from Las Vegas. He spent some time there. And I took my kids uh, to, we, we were traveling in the West one time, and we were going to see Hoover Dam. And th- there we were in, in Las Vegas, a little off the strip. And I thought, you know what? We'd we just go down and, and have something to eat on the strip. Stupidest thing I ever did. <laughs> You're like, what is going on here? Crazy, right? Imagine that every single day. And I'm not saying that there are not saved people in Las Vegas. There's like four. There used to be five. Jack left. (laughs) It's a hard city to live in if you're down on the strip every day. Imagine if you're a garbage collector as a Christian in Vegas and what you're exposed to let alone a police officer or a firefighter, right? I don't want to keep beating up on Vegas, but what was that life look like? And at some point, you just, you're just you so beaten down by the world, sometimes you're just like, ah, whatever. Something that I thought was important, really, it's not that important. I just give up. That's what started to happen to Pergamos. Guys, like a tumor that spreads through healthy flesh, compromise allows falsehoods to strangle the truth and ultimately destroys it. And listen, for the first verse this morning, only a sharp scalpel in the hands of a precise surgeon can remove the cancer without killing a patient. And Jesus is the one who says, I've got a sharp two-edged sword. Now, listen. Surgery is painful. If it wasn't, they wouldn't give us numbing agents and put us out. 
And so it hurts to take that Jesus comes in not only to our life, but a church, and he tries to get that out so it doesn't infect the rest of the body. Again, Christ being the great physician is qualified not only to diagnose, but to successfully treat the disease inside of the church. And so again, Jesus starts it out in verse 12. That was one verse. Is that right, Micah? I apologize right now. (laughs) Wow. I got a lot to do. (laughs) So Jesus says, I have a sharp two-edged sword. All right, next week we'll pick up on the second verse, apparently. (laughs) I didn't know I went that long, sorry. Yet I have a giant clock right in front of me. Just look at it. He says in verse 13, actually, the, the bulk of it is done. I know your works where you dwell and where Satan's throne is and that you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed amongst you where Satan dwells. Like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, the believers in Pergamos had suffered persecution in the beginning. Not only that is, Jesus mentions one of them by name, to which we have no other historical information about this guy, Antipas. It's the only thing here. So at some point, they refused in the beginning probably to say Caesar is Lord, and because of that, they were persecuted. But I want you to see this before we get into the heart of what they're in trouble for. But in verse 13, Jesus knows your works, no matter what it is, no matter if it's good or bad, but especially if it is good. And that's why I say as we journey through these letters and through church history, there are always saved people inside of these churches. Not all of them, but there are a remnant inside. And Jesus wanted to point that out for us that, listen, you guys live where Satan dwells and where his throne is. And again, there's much debate on the, the throne of Satan, obviously because of Pergamos and how many temples uh, uh, Satan had an address there. People like to say that he moved his address later to Rome and then into other cities. And that could very well be. But he says, I have a few things against you. He says, because you have these who hold fast to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality, and that you have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So those two go hand in hand, those verses. So despite them being... Uh, courageous and standing up in the beginning, something changed inside of this town. Something changed. Now, because Satan was not able to destroy uh, the apostolic church, remember that was the church of Ephesus, uh, the first 60-some years of the church, uh, the devil couldn't destroy it because they, they held fast to the word of God. They didn't allow false doctrine to come in. He couldn't destroy the second church in church history that of Smyrna, the, because he persecuted and killed them, he thought, well, if I kill them, they'll, they'll stop, but the church grew. So what do you do if you're Satan? Well, <laughs> because you can't make inroads against the false doctrine because people know their word. I can't get in that way. I can't kill them. So what happens? Well, Satan joined the church. He's a card-carrying member. and so. Eventually, a group of compromising people had infiltrated the church fellowship. And Jesus Christ, he's going to tell us how much he hates what they did and ultimately set up. So, at some point, I mean, not to hypothesize or to overthink this, but you got all of these pagan priests, right? They don't like this new Christianity. But what they're going to do is they're going to bring in their pagan practices and they're going to marry them together and they're eventually going to break down the people so much and go hey it's not such a big idea 
And you're going to see that the Roman Catholic Church through its history has always done this. When it's gone into a new area, it compromises with the beliefs of that area and marries them together. When they came into Latin America, uh, eventually they added the Day of the Dead to their repertoire because they wanted to, boy, that was a fancy word, wasn't it, this morning? Uh, they They wanted to be there, and so they brought these two ideas together. It doesn't have any place inside of the, the church, but they did it anyway. Now, we're going to talk about Balaam in a minute, and we're going to talk about these Nicolaitans. We, we briefly talked about the Nicolaitans uh, before, about those lording over and setting up an, um, an ecclesiastical order. That's a big fancy word with a lot of people who are in charge of what's going on not only uh, in their mind biblically, but instructing people, hiring people, ordaining people, setting up churches, and all these other programs, as even that is today, all of this hierarchy that goes out there. So that was part of the Nicolaitans. But the first one he said was this. He said that there, there are those who hold fast to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So, This goes back into Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Balaam was a prophet of the Lord. We don't know a whole lot about him, but it seemed that he did speak for God. He even said, Balak, look, I can't go with you because God will not allow me to curse his people. But eventually Balak says, I will give you everything that I have. And so money was a determining factor. And Balaam said, okay, uh, but listen, every time I talk, I'm just going to bless the Lord. And, and Balak just kept piling on the cash and piling on the cash. And eventually, Balak, uh, Balaam said, okay, listen, God is a jealous God. And he doesn't want his children worshiping any other God. So this is what you do. Take your Moabite honeys, tell them to go into the camp. Tell them to go to the Jewish men and say, this is how we worship our God. Bring out your gods. Bring the foods for them. Have them sacrifice. And then tell your women that our our worship of our foreign gods includes sexual immorality. And Balaam said, when you do that, God will strike them down. And sure enough, over uh, 20,000 men were killed that day because of the advice of Balaam. And with this compromise, the devil was allowed new access to the inner workings of this newfound religion. And over the next 300 plus years, unbiblical practices and compromises entered the church. These pagan practices introduced into the church an influence of not only paganism, but just worldliness Well, it happened one step at a time. The church began to shroud itself in what was uh, called mystery. They wanted to be mysterious. They wanted to bring in pagan uh, symbols and pagan worship. And there's a book called The Two Babylons by Hyssop. Now, again, this is a book that must be read sitting straight up. You lean down and you lay down, it will take you out. But it is one of the best (laughs) <laughs> books there is. It is one of my favorite books. Matt Shaitney has said, for any Bible teacher, you need to work your way through the two Babylons because the Babylonian religion is the oldest religion there is. And when we have the Tower of Babel and all of that was set up, that had all of its uh, religious, uh, not only symbols, but priests that were going on. And that is in basically every religion all around the world. And it found itself inside of the Catholic Church. It found itself, and by the way, when I say Catholic, the word Catholic in the beginning just meant universal. That's all it meant. But there became something known as the Roman Catholic Church, the RCCs, as we call them. All right, I'm the only one who calls them that. Now, I'm going to give you a kind of a partial list here of the things that were interesting introduced over the next 300 years inside of that. But before we do that, I want to show you one verse. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Now, the, and, and let me just state this right away. This is by no means me picking on the Roman Catholic Church. I'm going to talk about the Lutheran Church coming up. I'm going to talk about state churches. I'm going to talk about religion. I have no tolerance for religion, and neither does God. He's, we're going to see that he cannot stand what was set in place. So this is, I don't want any letters. I don't want you coming up and saying you're beating up on the RCCs. That's not what I'm doing. I'm showing you truth, and sadly, people are so steeped in tradition and religion, they get all offended, but they have no idea where the foundation of it is to begin with. Where did it come from? What is our favorite phrase here at Calvary Chapel? Where is that in the Bible? Oh, good job. We'll see how second service does. But I want to, and this is not tongue-in-cheek, but the Roman Catholic Church says that Peter is the first pope. You know that. And if you don't know that, but I find it interesting that Pete, who is apparently the first pope, said this. Listen to what he says. 2 Peter 1, verse, we'll start in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light of the, sh- uh, uh, the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say that? Let's turn back to Revelation. Because you will see, and you might have people that you know will say, well, these popes got divine inspiration. What did the word just say? That can't happen. When the Bible was completed roughly around this time, that was it. You cannot add or take away from it. There is... There are verses that we will see, and there is judgment for those who do such adding or taking away from. So, I, and again, this is not me uh, coming heavy against him. A pope doesn't get to change something that is already in the Bible. It doesn't get to contradict that and say, well, Jesus told me this or that. That's not how it happens. If he didn't tell everyone else in Christianity, then it is nothing new. And this is the problem that we have. And some of these doctrines started out this way. And again, read Hyssop's book. It's fabulous, but a lot of these are all pagan in origin. In 8300, the prayers for the dead started, also making the sign of the cross. In 375 A.D., the worship of saints and angels, and we'll talk about that. Why would you pray to a saint if you've got Jesus? Right? You've got friends that have that statue, and they bury that statue upside down in their lot so they could sell their property. I know it. I worked at a Christian bookstore where the owner was Roman Catholic. Do you know how many Roman Catholic statues we sold to people trying to sell their property, bury it up and down? This? Are you kidding me? It's a piece of nothing. Well, yeah, tradition tells us to do it. I want you to see this. As I, What the devil did is he got everybody's eyes off of who? And if I'm focused on this, if I'm focused on this, if I'm focused around a charm, if I'm focused on Mary, if I'm focused on the mystery, if I'm focused on this or that, I miss him. And that's what religion is all about. Religion misses him. And it puts our eyes on every other dumb thing that will never save anybody. All right, let's continue. Worship of Mary began in 431 A.D. In 500, the priests began dressing differently than the laity, although a lot of tradition says it did start around this time as well. Doctrine of purgatory came in in 593. 
the worship services in 600, this was terrible, were conducted in Latin and Latin alone, which means it was only done in Latin, not the common tongue of the day. And this is one of the problems that Martin Luther had because he felt that the Bible should be in the common tongue and that people should be able to understand it. Uh, again, this time the priest taught that only the priest could understand the Bible and not you. So from A.D. 312 on, the church became more Roman and less Christian in its practices. The other thing that happened is this, and I, I need to quickly mention this because it is important into our study of the book of Revelation, but something was, was implemented during this time and to which we are paying the price for it today, and that is the post-millennial uh, doctrine was introduced. And let me read to you from a commentary so you can have a better understanding. They say, the blessed doctrine of the imminent return of Christ exposed I'm sorry, espoused by the church in the first three centuries, producing an evangelical consecration, a fervent church began to change when Christianity became the state religion. As the church became powerful and rich, it suggested that the world was getting better and better, not worse and worse, and that Christ's kingdom had already been ushered in and that he would come at the end of the thousand-year reign. Kind of funny how they have to move that thousand-year reign. They're like, oh, we came to the end of it. Well, there's another one. And they just keep adding on top of that. This demanded, and this is the dangerous thing that happened, this demanded a reinterpretation of the status of Israel, which was accomplished by suggesting that Israel had been cast off forever and the promises of Israel now applied to the church. One of the, the problems with Luther was that he kept that. He, did, he, he agreed. And by the way, they called them Christ killers from this point on in, in church history. The Jews became Christ killers. That's why it was easy for Hitler to do what he did. Because Hitler was a good Lutheran. See, guys, we just don't know our history. It is so frustrating. It's frustrating as a teacher to watch uh, young families come in who don't even know basic history and basic church history. Why are we, why do we have what we have? Well, because the devil joined the church and the church didn't stand up and kick him out. Not until, the, not until 1,400 years later in the 1800s was the coming of Jesus re-emphasized wasn't until the 1800s. And everyone wants to say John Darby is the, the founder of the modern uh, rapture movement or end times movement. No, it wasn't. It was before. It just was hidden for 1,400 years and then came back to the stage when people shockingly, ready for it, read their Bibles. And the Holy Spirit started to real, reveal to them the truths inside of it. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whenever a local church or denomination has maintained a strong emphasis on the second coming of the blessed Lord, it has been an evangelical, missionary-oriented church. When a church relies upon the word for its life, then it will know to tell people that Jesus is coming and send people out to tell other people about it. Where this doctrine has been neglected, the church has become cold, indifferent, worldly, and religious. Again, they sinned by taking in the ceremonies of paganism, which later on became doctrines that no one could say if it was biblical or not. And if you ask a family member, where is that in the Bible? They can't say it because it's not there. Hey, look, we're doing pretty good. Verse 15. Thus, you also have those who have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. And again, from Ephesus, this was those lording over. And what was created during this time was a massive organization. 
And I thought about this just for a moment before I came up here. I thought about that. Think about, and again, I, I'm not beating up on this group. So no letters, no saying it afterwards. I'm, this is not what I'm saying. But I want you to just think about the structure of the Roman Catholic Church right now. By the way, the greatest landowner in the world. And think about, I'm not even talking about the Pope. I'm just talking about the guys under him. All these bishops, all these cardinals, all this structure of church and religion. And the guy that's really doing his job is the priest at the local church, which I don't like to say priest. And Jesus is called no man father. So don't do that either. That's the guy who's doing the real work. And yet there is like 6,000 people above him. How is that, how is anybody going to get things done? This is a great thing about Calvary Chapel. We just have a few guys here. We can get things done. I'm very thankful for the ministry of Pastor Joe Foch in Philadelphia. And he's, he only has two other guys, and that's the whole church is run by those three guys. Getting things done, doing ministry, moving things forward. Does this ministry need something good? Isn't it great to go to three guys or one guy versus a committee? And maybe some of you went to a church like that where you had to plead your case to the committee to get something done. Not here. Just give me some snickerdoodles. I'll pass anything you want. Maybe wrapped in bacon. See, guys, God never wanted this structure of church. He tells us that right here. I didn't want that. Not only that, I hate that. And if Jesus hates something, shouldn't we hate that as well? He says, repent or else. Again, you don't want to hear that. (laughs) Or I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Again, the sword. I will fight you with the word of God. How do you fight religion? With the Bible. Because then they're arguing against the Bible and not against a man not against a group. Go ahead. Fine word isn't here. Show me purgatory. Show me that I need to worship Mary. Show me that I need to make the sign of the cross. Show me the seven sacraments in here. Show me. And show me where I'm supposed to pray to St. Christopher. Not in there. And so they have to develop something. Okay, I'll leave it there. He who has an ear. Anybody have ears today? Okay. But there are a lot of people who don't. Thank you, Micah. Uh, apparently the only one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And to him who overcomes, I will give hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone on a new, and on that new stone, a new name which is written that no one except him who receives it knows it. All right. In the short time we have left, let's apply it to not only the churches today, but to us individually. I gave you church history. That was wonderful. You sat through it. Let's apply it to us. Amen? Let's apply it to the church in 2021. Believers today also face a temptation to achieve personal advancement by ungodly means or ungodly compromise. Again, the word pergamos means to marry, to be joined together. The congregation of individual Christians that compromise with the world just to avoid suffering or to achieve success is committing spiritual adultery. Did you hear that? I even underlined it in my notes. Just to avoid. We love to avoid things. And the easiest way to avoid something is just to go along with someone else. I don't really want that pain. I don't want that suffering. So I'm just going to go along with that. That's what's going on in the church today. We just don't want to bother with it. So we're going to do whatever the man says. Again, overcoming the culture of compromise. It's important for us as believers. Our culture demands equal rights, alternative lifestyles, redefines traditional values, Winks at sin, glorifies rebellion. But Christ towards our attitude towards compromise is something that we should take notice of. 
We need to consistently remember, as we're going to see, four things about compromise. Just four things. Here they are. Compromise never occurs quickly. It just doesn't. You don't, want, you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to compromise. Ships accidentally drift off course. We know that. We learned that in Hebrews, not to drift away, the writer says. We need to play, pay close attention to what we've heard unless we drift away. There needs to be a shoring up of the fundamentals in our life. We need to rid ourselves of been there, done that attitude inside of the church. We need to get back to the simple truths of Scripture and the faith. And like ancient sailors faced, uh, fixed on the North Star, we need to focus on Jesus. Not on the world, not on social media, but on Jesus. And that's how the church is going to weather what we're going through now. Number two, compromise always lowers the, the original standard. Compromise often begins when we try to replace God's perfect standards of truth and morality with man-based religion plans that are apparently better than God's. Throughout history, we've seen churches and denominations compromise on issues from the inspiration of God's word to the deity of Christ for the sake of keeping their members or getting a bigger church. Such compromises are never worth it. Hebrews 10.23 tells us, Let us hold fast to our confession and our hope without wavering. <laughs> without wavering. Jude also said, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Are we so far gone that we can't heed Jude? We need to commit ourselves to eating, either adding these truths or subtracting worldly things from our life. Third, compromise is seldom offensive. It's not offensive to people. People who compromise regularly tend to be great politicians <laughs> or excellent crowd pleasers. While wise compromise, again, over gray issues or preferences are okay, we need to be firm. Too often Christians walk on eggshells when they're around sensitive people or believers because they don't want to offend them. And I don't mean to say this in a wrong way, but offend them. It might get them out of hell. Would you rather offend them and them stand next to you and say, here, well done and good and faithful servant? Or just say, well, I really don't want to offend that person in my family. They may not like me. It's eternity we're talking about. This, this world is not going to stay here much longer. John 15, 19 should, be clear, should clear up the matter. If, if you were of the world, the world would have loved you because the world loves its own. Jesus says they won't love you because you're not of the world. Here's my other underlining thing today. Don't expect to be loved by the general public when you refuse to compromise. Don't, don't expect to be loved. I don't expect the world to love us. It's not that we're crass. We are, to, we are to dole out truth and love, not to have, listen, I have a real problem with people who have picket signs and say all manner of ungodliness on those signs. That is not a believer. That's not how we love one another. We will show them by our love, not by our crassness. That's stupid. Sorry, did that offend somebody? Don't care. <laughs> Fourth, compromise is often the first step towards total disobedience. How do I know that? The Bible's filled with it. David is a great example of a guy who shouldn't have been in town, who should have been on the battlefield, but decided to stay home because he was pushing 50. David's sin of adultery and murder did not happen because of one weak moment, but because of the choices he made early on in his life, and especially not going out to battle. These small steps, which in itself don't appear to be important matters, but they do lead to a complete collapse down the road. And so the question is, what are these small areas in your life like David? 
And lastly, a difficult environment never justifies compromise. Let me say that again. A difficult environment or a difficult year never justifies compromise. It's easy for a church in such difficult times to justify compromise in the name of we need all the help we can get or we need to love our neighbors as I hear so much in 2020. But no church needs the kind of help from the government or to compromise to the loss of their witness. Today, the church is allowing government to dictate what it can do and even say. Wokeness is absurdness. I had that hand in there for... I was channeling my inner Rocky. Wokeness is absurdness. It dictates what the church should say about social topics. Gender, abortion, critical race theory, social justice. In all of these, we should not marry into the church. Let me tell you how easy it is. Gender, two. Abortion, not a choice, murder. See how easy it is? Race theory. The world is not against one group unless you're the Jews or Christians. Blacks are not being hunted down. Bad happens to all groups, white, black, Asian. It doesn't matter what group. Bad happens to both. God says it rains on the just and on the unjust. There is bad in this world because of sin, not because of some made-up term. I was thinking about this because I was learning about Wilberforce, I mentioned him last week, that you know what's interesting to me? That a, two white guys helped get rid of racism. Wilberforce in England and Abraham Lincoln. And yet, apparently that, that's not good enough. Social justice, we hear that. Listen, justice is supposed to be blind. The Supreme Court, there is a image, Matt, right? The justice with the balances, and she's blindfolded. If you do the crime, no matter what color or no matter what race, you will do the time. I'll tell you what's frustrating, and let me just kind of end with frustration, is because the statistics are not all released, no one hears about them. Do you know that more whites who are unarmed, are gunned down by police than blacks? Do you hear that? No. Is that on CNN? No, it doesn't fit a narrative. And now we got the Chinese calling us out on something that we invented in wokeness. Listen, this nation deserves everything it's about to get because of how dumb we have been and walking away from God. Again, justice only cares about who did it, not why. Just who did it. Again, there are no place inside of the church for this. Jesus is the center and sin is at the forefront. Forgiveness needs to happen to you by your acceptance of your moral failure. See, people don't think that it's their fault. It's somebody else's fault. We blame everybody. We have identity politics. The Bible says you're a sinner. And you are going to hell if you don't accept Jesus. Now, that message is not friendly right now. We just got banned. <laughs> People don't want to hear that. They need to hear that. And now, I say that in love. You know, the, the hard thing for me as a pastor is not to seem angry as I preach. And we can... We can Mix anger with passion. So it's funny, if you watch pastors on YouTube, you know, if you turn the volume off, does it seem like they love somebody or they just yelling at people? <laughs> Maybe a little bit of this one today. Again, forgiveness needs to happen to you by your acceptance of your moral fa failure and coming to know Jesus. The church should never be woke. It needs to awaken to the Bible. That's what this compromising church tells us. Get back to the Bible. Who cares what your church looks like or how many likes it has 
or even the amount of money that comes in. I don't even care about that. Nor does God. He will provide. That doesn't mean you stop giving. (laughs) Bill wanted me to know that everyone is getting their tax um, check, so, you know, you kind of have to do that too. Listen, individual, stop complaining. I, I think that's one of the best things that the church needs to hear today. Stop complaining. Oh, they're against us. They're this. They're that. Yes, you're going to be. You are going to receive persecution. So will I. Things are going to happen. Do you know how many bad things have happened up at the camp in the last two weeks that de- the devil doesn't want us to accomplish? Pipes bursting flooded the entire barn. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right? We expect things to happen because we're followers of Jesus. I don't expect an easy life now, and neither should you. And if you do, then you're compromising. You will feel hardship. You, but it's only for a moment. It's only for a brief moment. And yes, there are great things to this life as a believer, and there are wonderful experiences on planet Earth. As a believer, stop complaining. Stop compromising. Be different than the world, even if that means to stand up and be martyred like Antipas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our day and for the compromising church, Lord, that the fix to it is only the word of God. To stand firm in the Bible and what the Bible would say to the church. Lord, help us in this nation. Help us, Lord, not bring in the things of the world. Your word, Lord is all we need. We don't need the plans of man and we don't need government edicts telling us when we can worship. We follow the true and the living creator God and and to him only do we serve. Thank you, Lord, for our morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Thank you again. That's